Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're here at this uh, really beautiful venue, the National Tribal Public Health Summit in Prior Lake, Minnesota. We've been speaking with people who are making a difference in Indian country, providing opportunities to help tribes and individuals. And the person sitting across from me right now is no exception in that uh, arena. She actually is someone who represents Grand Canyon University. Her name is Julia Hendrickson. Julia, great to have you with us. Hi, thanks for having me. Julia, you folks have a very visible presence here. You've got a very nice booth, (laughs) you and uh, one of your colleagues. And a lot of people say, well, Grand Canyon University, what connection does that have with Indian country? Sure, sure. So a little bit about us and who we are. We are a private Christian university. Um, We've been around since 1949. We are based out of Phoenix, Arizona. And as many of you know, there are quite a few Native American tribes in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So um, what Grand Canyon has done is we've grown. We've also tried to help with, you know, our our native neighbors. And so there's people like me and my colleague who are here. We attend conferences. We also visit the reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, we speak with the tribal leaders, with the higher education folks, working with scholarships, different things of that nature. Um, and we are based in Phoenix, but we also have a pretty wide range of online opportunities mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Quite a robust offering, almost 200 different programs. Wow. So that helps for our folks that are kind of out in the remote areas, uh-huh. you know, if they can't, if it's two hours to the nearest university, how are they ever going to get a bachelor's degree? Right. Whereas, you know, what happens a lot in Arizona is we need teachers back. Mm-hmm. And in the remote areas, it's even harder to fill those spots. Right. So you have a lot of emergency certified teachers. You have a lot of long-term substitutes. You have a lot of people that need that bachelor's degree so they mm-hmm. can get licensed, but they don't have any way to, to get to where, you know, there may be a community college, but you still can't get your bachelor's degree for the licensure Mm -hmm. or, you know, a lot of nursing programs and different things of that nature that we go and we just talk to people about what we have to offer and see if they're interested. And then we look into scholarships and just see how we can help. This is excellent. I know you've been making a special priority of helping native students Mm -hmm. attend uh, GCU. Um, One of the things you mentioned I thought was very interesting is you talked about this emergency certification of teachers. Am I understanding correctly Julia, that if someone has a bachelor's degree, maybe it's in, could be in any discipline, uh, could be communications, could be political science, they're wondering what to do and they're having trouble finding a job, they can actually go through this kind of intensive training and they're equipped to teach in a schoolroom. Is that right? Right. So what happens with that type of person, mm-hmm. um, you just you hit the nail on the head. They typically have a bachelor's degree in anything and they're looking for a job. They maybe live out in a remote area mm-hmm. and we need teachers. So they'll get them in the classroom just because they need a, a teacher there. Mm-hmm. But they still need to get licensed through the state. Mm-hmm. There's there's still requirements with that. So somebody like that, we would do a, like a master's in education, mm-hmm. which leads to licensure. Mm-hmm. So then at the end of the day, they still have their bachelor's degree. They'll have a master's in education, and they'll have the licensure so they can continue to teach. Okay. And typically get a pay bump, too. Okay. So basically what I understand you're saying, Julia, is the uh, – critical question to ask if someone's 
really at a crossroads in their life is what kind of opportunities are out there. And what you're telling people here in this venue is don't X off options because you're not close to a campus, you can't live leave home, mm-hmm. because you've got a range of distance learning opportunities that is that is quite uh, quite impressive. Yeah. What kind of range of things could someone get a degree in if they're, well, could someone, let's say, in the southeastern United States get a degree from GCU? Sure, sure. So um, we work with people all over the world, you mm-hmm. know, even even out of the country, Wow. you know, obviously with our native population. But we do work with Canada and Alaska and, and all over. So anyone, anywhere can take classes online. So mm-hmm. it's not limited by that at all. Um, and as far as offerings go, I mean, we've got the Coangelo College of Business, we've got mm. College of Education, College of Nursing and Health Sciences, Humanities, we've even got doctoral programs. Okay. Um, you know, like I said, we have, I think now, 220 different programs that we offer, from starting at the bachelor's level, then the master's, and then on to doctoral. Now, for someone who's never heard of GCU, or maybe they've heard of it, but uh, they say, well, this doesn't sound like a very large institution, it's a private school. Uh, do you have many students there? We do. So our campus in Phoenix now has grown. I think it's about 300 acres now. 300 acres? Yeah, we have 18,000 students on campus. That is a huge school. Yeah, we have Division One athletics. Our basketball team plays in the tournaments. Really? Yeah. I mean, this is like incredible yeah. for a guy who doesn't know much about <laughs> GCU. So, so you've got this... Uh, you know, a large campus, and you've got a welcoming environment for Native students. We, we've talked about it many mm-hmm. times on the show that a lot of times Native students will end up on a campus and they just won't connect. But you actually have a deliberate program where you help Native students connect on campus, right? Right, right. So we have, I mean, they have obviously you know, their own, like, groups and different things that mm-hmm. students start all the time. Right. Um, and we're working on developing an actual facility where they can meet and have it just be, like, or like say our, our military students uh-huh. because they've got like a lounge they can go to. So we're putting together the Native American students lounge where they can just go mm. and connect with each other and mm-hmm. do club activities, things uh-huh. like that. You know, a lot of times if you're attending um, classes on campus, you know, when you're a freshman, it can be intimidating. Sure. It can be scary. Sure. And I know when I first started out, I was scared to death. Mm-hmm. You don't know where to go or what to do. And so... We try to have a lot of opportunities where they can connect with each other and support each other. Um, because if someone's coming from a really remote area, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes people are kind of shy and they're not sure. And Phoenix is a big city. So our campus is what we call it's a closed campus. So in order to come on campus, you go through a security. Okay. So that way we keep out any riffraff. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? No, that's so nice. We don't have, like, vendors just coming on campus uh-huh. and trying to solicit people or talk, uh-huh. you know. You have to be approved, and it has to, you know, so we keep it very, um, I don't know if closed is the right word, but I think safe is a better word. Oh, I, th- I like that. And I like that. The, our dorms, which are different than what a lot of your state schools offer, are run by GCU. So every huh. floor of the dorm has an RA and a tutor. Uh-huh. And you can pick what kind of dorm you want to live in. If you want to live in co-ed or how many roommates you want, there's all kinds of different uh-huh. opportunities for that. Um, we're always having events on campus and things to be more inclusive mm-hmm. of everybody, bringing mm-hmm. everybody together, meeting people, having mixers and pool parties and all those types of things. But the important part for me that I noticed when I started working for GCU was the safety factor. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, no drugs, no booze, no none really? of that. Because we keep everything together. We have our own police force uh-huh. there, and uh-huh. we just don't. We have a zero tolerance policy for any of that. So, 
So basically, you've got this heritage. Now, you've told me some about this. I didn't realize it before. Mm -hmm. But you do have a Christian background. We were talking some before the show about how some people in Indian country, they hear Christian, they say, that's wonderful, I'm a Christian. But other Native Americans don't have warm feelings when they hear about a Christian campus. Uh, You were telling me the story of someone who saw some of your messaging online about what's different about GCU and this whole spiritual environment. They presumably were not a Christian. Right. How did they respond to that message? So it's funny. It was this morning, and I was just you know having okay. a chat with uh-huh. somebody, and um, they happened to be on Facebook okay. and see this new ad that we put out with regards to you know being a Christian university and what does that mean for students? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for students that don't identify as Christian? Mm-hmm. And so that, it, and I'm not nearly as eloquent as the gentleman who put together the whole thing well, but that's it was, okay but you're doing great yeah. <laughs> it was um it was very well put out because it's more you know yes we are a christian university but we don't force you to become christian mm-hmm. if that's not with how you identify you don't have to attend chapel you don't have to go to the college of theology you don't uh-huh. the only class that we have that would even be christian based is christian worldview and that's just more of uh, an exploration mm-hmm. and more of an you know information like this is what we believe in as a university, uh-huh. but if you don't believe in it, that's okay. Uh-huh. And I've had friends, um, a good friend of mine, and he, he needed to get his degree, and he knew I worked for a university. Uh-huh. And he was like, all right, sign me up. Said, okay. So we got it all signed up, ready uh-huh. to go. And then he called me one day, and he's like, what is this Christian? What? what, what? He's, and I was like, we're a Christian university. It's Christian worldview. It's one class. Uh-huh. He was so mad. Uh-huh. And he was like, I didn't even know. And I'm like, it's okay. So he calmed down, and he took the class. And he said it was the most interesting class of all the ones he took. Really? It, was, it became his favorite class. Not that he became Christian, uh-huh. but he said it was very interesting because the way the curriculum was designed, even though he didn't identify as Christian, he was still able to say that uh-huh. in an open format uh-huh. and have discourse uh-huh. with people who were Christian and kind of just explore that sure, in sure. a safe space instead of, because sometimes, you know, you get to talking about religion and no, 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 yeah. too much emotion gets exactly. involved. We know how so, that can happen. Um, so it, that was my, you know, kind of an eye opening for me where because he was not happy. And then he took the class and he said, you know, it was the, one of the most enjoyable classes I ever had. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. I was like, OK. No, that's mm-hmm. very good. So you're someone who is working for GCU, but you're not just working for GCU. Uh, you have your master's in business administration, right? I do. But um, some people would say, well, I mean, that's a great degree in the business field. You don't need more than that. <laughs> but for some reason, you've decided you wanted to get further education. And you're actually a student at GCU, too. Am I understanding that correctly? I am, yes. And what are you studying now? So I'm in a Ph.D. program mm-hmm. in performance psychology. Performance psychology. Mm-hmm. So like life coaching and uh-huh. kind of like what I do as a counselor okay. and, you know, talking to people and kind of helping them find out what's going to work for them and, you know, helping them get to that next level. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, just, I guess I'm just the kind of person that likes to help people. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so, so your title, university development counselor, does that mean you work one-on-one with students? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. yep. So this is really interesting, Julia, because what I hear you saying with this, uh, doctoral degree it's really helping you to do things like radio interviews <laughs> so cause this is this is human performance right yeah. in fact now you may not realize this but um in some of the research i've seen one of the most stressful experiences for people is speaking before an audience uh-huh. 
And even though you and I are just here <laughs> talking to one another, some people, when I put this headset and microphone in front of them, yeah. it can be somewhat intimidating. You didn't have any of those sentiments at all. Is that true? No, that's not true. I was nervous as could be. Okay. <laughs> and what's funny is, you know, I attend these conferences and I uh, work directly with people, all, you know, and have mm-hmm. those conversations. But, but it is a little, you know. It's a little intimidating. <laughs> but what I think is wonderful is what you're doing is what you're challenging people to do on this show. You stepped out of your comfort zone a bit, or maybe a lot, <laughs> yeah. to get behind this microphone. And what you're telling a lot of Native students to think about doing is stepping out of their comfort zone and at least exploring GCU. Do you make it easy for people to visit? Like oh, to do yeah. So how does that process work? So, so there's a few different things. Um, one, if you just want to go to campus and do a tour, we have tours that run every hour on the hour. Wow. So you can just show up and go, and they take you all uh-huh. around campus and talk to you about the dorms and stuff like that. And okay. then if you want to have further conversation about housing or meal mm-hmm. plans or tuition, scholarships, things like that, then they have counselors on site that can help with that too. Um, the other thing, if you want to attend on campus, mm-hmm. we have something called Discover GCU, hmm. where they can come down and we partner with a current student, uh-huh. and they actually stay the night in oh, the really? dorms, okay. and they have all kinds of different workshops and things that they uh-huh. can experience so they can see what it's like to live there, to be there, to see what kind of students are there. So they have an opportunity to see if they're going to like it or not. Nice, if they nice. hate it, then that's it. No harm, no foul. So basically, you've got a lot of opportunities for people to get acquainted with the university. You've got all kinds of program offerings, over 220 20, different yeah. programs. So if you're listening to American Indian Living today, um, maybe you've got a grandchild, a child who needs further education, and you haven't had GCU on your radar screen, uh, what Julia is saying is, hey, think about us. H- how do they get a hold of you if they want to get more information? Sure. So it's really easy. Um, you can call me directly. It's 480-818-3867. Or you can always go to the Grand Canyon University website, which is really simple. It's just gcu.edu. Wow. That's it. And then you'll get in touch with me directly, easily. My job isn't just to talk to people, Mm -hmm. but also to help through the enrollment process, help through financial aid, help maneuver scholarships and all that stuff that's overwhelming. I help you get through all that and then help show you how to go to school. If you're going to take classes online, you got to know how to do it. Wow. That is great. So Julia Hendrickson, that's the name you want to remember. (laughs) Her phone number, if you didn't catch it, 480-818-3867. Or you can just connect with her on the web and with GCU at GCU for... Grand Canyon University.edu. Julia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We're going to step away for just a couple of minutes. We will be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. A lot more great guests coming up from the National Tribal Public Health Summit. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen, high blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke, and you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. 
For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose here at the National Tribal Public Health Summit. We are in Minnesota, not far from Minneapolis, in Prior Lake, Minnesota. And we've been talking with people who are making a difference in Indian country now in our virtual studio in the exhibit area is Dawn Coley. Dawn, it's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, I walked by your booth a number of times, I'll be honest with you, and I kept seeing the sign Tribal Diagnostics, and it just was not registering in my computer. It took another uh, Native individual to connect us because, I mean, you guys just weren't on my radar screen. Tell us how long you've been around, first of all. Well, tribal Diagnostics has been in existence for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a small business um, operation, and we provide, we're a reference laboratory. Okay. We provide services to Indian country, and then also we have a non-native market base mm. that we provide laboratory services to. Okay. So do I understand correctly you're based in Oklahoma City? That is correct. Our lab is based in Oklahoma City. So presumably tribes from anywhere in the country can draw blood, uh, collect urine samples, whatever, and ship them to you. Is that kind of how it works? That is correct, yes. Our reach is national. Mm -hmm. Um, We can go as far as Alaska, down to Florida, and we actually have probably about 12 tribes that we're contracted with. So we're building momentum now. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. again, you know, being here at this summit helps us to build more of that brand awareness of who mm. we are, tribal diagnostics, and getting that messaging out that we're available for tribes to use. No, that's tremendous. So what would you say to someone who's maybe working in a tribal health center, and they say, well, we're already using maybe one of the big reference labs, maybe a LabCorp Quest or one of these, 
and they say, uh, why should we talk with you guys? We're getting, you know, good pricing and good service. Well, my response to that would be that specifically working in Indian country, Mm -hmm. we bring that cultural aspect to the table. We understand the needs of our people. We're a Native American-owned business, Mm -hmm. and 80% of our staff are American Indian or Alaska Native. So when we work with tribes who are historically very traditional Mm -hmm. or want to incorporate their medicine men or individuals within the tribe to work with that health and wellness component, Mm -hmm. we understand that. And we know how to customize their lab services so they be able to offer that to tribal members. And that includes tribal members that may be coming out of treatment facilities. Mm -hmm. Individuals come out of treatment facilities. Everybody is excited. They get a hurrah. But what happens 30 days after that? Right, right. You know, where is the hurrah or this is a success story? Um, So we can help to build a roadmap, help to provide them with the toolkit or tools to succeed on and also keep them interested in coming back to the clinic Mm -hmm. and promote that health and wellness component, which the tribes very much need. Mm -hmm. And you find that a lot of the labs, like a lab core request, they don't offer that service and that's okay. Because that's probably not their area of expertise, but that is our area of expertise. Mm -hmm. So let me see if I understand this correctly. Because a lot of people would say, well, there's not really maybe a tribally sensitive component to doing a complete blood count or a chemistry profile. But are there some things that a clinician, maybe they're not native, but they work in an IHS facility or a tribal health clinic, and they're saying, well, I don't get it. What is the cultural sensitivity about a blood test? Do you see my question? Yeah, I understand 100%. Well, one component could be behavioral health clinicians, Mm -hmm. okay, or psychiatrists or uh, social workers that are working with somebody with drug addiction, uh-huh, uh-huh. and they're coming back to be screened, okay, for follow-up or treatment. Uh-huh. That's our reach. Okay. Okay? Not so much with just your normal blood draws, uh-huh. but specifically on opiate addiction. Uh-huh. Really, that's where we can bring more of that cultural sensitivity. I hear you. And incorporate that into a treatment plan for a physician. Group therapy, treatment in the clinical setting, Absolutely. So you're not just offering lab services then? No. If I was working with you and I had a patient who maybe was supposed to be taking a certain opiate and we get a urine drug test back and it shows another opiate in the urine, I could get on the phone and say, you know, is this accurate? What would you recommend that I do in this situation? You would actually go that far? Yes, that is correct. Because we do the screening. We Mm -hmm. have collection sites set up with these clinics and we staff those sites and those samples come into our lab. We do the science, we do the analysis and provide those results back to the physicians. And then the physicians may call and say, well, you know, as you just stated, I see something else. Mm -hmm. So can we run this other test? Okay. And yes, we can. Um, We can provide that to the clinician or to the Uh physician. In addition to that, our pricing. Mm-hmm. We're small, we're efficient, technologically advanced, which affords us to really be able to 
provide good pricing okay. to the tribes. Okay. And that's attractive, especially with the budgeting mm-hmm. cycle that these tribes go through. So pricing, you know, the cultural sensitivity uh-huh. aspect, and just good conscience that we're providing good positive health comes mm-hmm. to the tribal nations. So what I'm hearing is even if someone's not making the connection with cultural sensitivity in a lab setting, you know, you've, you've shared a little bit about that, but I hear you making a really compelling case for saying if you want to do business with other Native people, a Native-owned business, this is definitely a selling point. If you're looking for something that's cost-effective and high-quality, this is what you're Absolutely. focused on. It seems to me that you've got a good kind of position uh, already in Indian country, even though I'm hearing about you for the first time, and That's I'm sure right. a lot of other people are. Yes. What kind of response are you getting at a convention like this? Are people interested in what you have to offer? Absolutely. We've actually have the trust and the relationships with a lot of the health boards here mm. that are attending the conference and We have engagements that are going to be coming up, face-to-face engagements where we will be presenting to tribal council, Mm -hmm. health boards on services, um, what we can provide on lab services or consulting with them. Excellent. Yeah. Now, you have an interesting accent. Although you're based in Oklahoma City, it sounds more like something from the Northeast. Am I discerning that correctly? That's correct. I am actually a tribal member of the Penobscot Nation in Maine. Mm-hmm. My background, I have over 32 years in healthcare administration. Wow. So. And so you were part of the team that started the uh, tribal diagnostics? Yes. Okay. So they brought in some people who have a lot of experience, got deep roots in Indian country, and now you're taking it out to folks. Tell me about this, because I walked by the booth, but I didn't really pay probably as much attention as I should have to some of the resources there. It looked like you did have some very nicely done materials that deal especially with addiction. What all do you have there for participants here, and is some of that available online? Yes, it is, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, we do have some collateral material that is on the table that is specifically um, targeted toward the opiate addiction crisis. That's our main focus in this conference is Uh to make sure that we let our constituents and others that we can provide that service and some education around the opiate epidemic. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we also have a website, which is www.tribaldiagnostics.com. Okay. Individuals can go there and they can also read our mission statement and some of the other services that we provide. Mm-hmm. So all I've got to do is remember tribaldiagnostics.com. That's correct. Now, probably one other question that at least comes up as people walk by the booth. There's a number of uh, exhibitors here that have different testing capacities. You're a reference lab, but there's a lot of things that are what we call point of care that could be used in a clinic. Do you do anything like that? Do you help set up labs? I kind of gathered you have some type of presence like that. Explain that a little bit more. Yes, we do. We are actually looking at um, an opportunity in New Mexico where we would go and work with individuals to help them or consult on helping them to 
set up a lab uh, okay. to provide other economic development opportunities. Mm. So absolutely, yeah. We believe in sharing the knowledge that to keep the business in Indian country, mm-hmm. to keep the money in an Indian country, you need to be able to share those best practices. Uh-huh. So this is exciting. So really, you're you're saying if anybody listening to this show either has an interest in exploring options for a, a different reference laboratory that's native-owned, or if maybe you're, as a tribe or as a tribal consortium, you're looking at uh, offering some alternative laboratory services in your area, any of those people would be worth calling you specifically, Dawn, or, or calling someone else in the organization? Oh, they could call me specifically. That's fine. And is the <laughs> website the best place to contact you through tribaldiagnostics.com? Yes. Okay. Dawn, our time for this segment has uh, just about slipped away. Do you have any final message for our listeners to kind of wrap things up? No. Thank you very much for having me on the program today. We're all passionate about how we work with our elders and with our youth and the products and the programs that we're offering are helping us to sustain that. Thanks so much for doing the great work that you're doing. we got to step away just for a couple of minutes. Don't go away. We'll be back with more on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're continuing interviews from the National Tribal Public Health Summit at the Mystic Lake Casino and Resort in Prior Lake, Minnesota. We are doing some very, very exciting uh, exciting interviews. I've been enjoying the folks that we've had here in the exhibit hall in our virtual studio. And the two ladies sitting next to me now are no exception to the great group of guests we've had. So we're going to speak now about an amazing, amazing topic. It's a sad topic, but an encouraging topic as well because some things are coming out that can help you and the ones you love. We're talking about SIDS, the Sudden Infant death syndrome. And to help us are are some folks that work with the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child and Human Development. Lorena Kaplan is sitting right next to me. Lorena, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And when we think of the National Institutes of Health, you're working in one of those divisions. Mm -hmm. I am. I am. The Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development is one of those institutes. And this um, particular institute is very dedicated to the health and well-being of individuals across the lifespan. One of the ways in which the institute supports um, not only research but also conducts and supports um, by funding research um, is to help uh, folks figure out what we can do to reduce the risk of SIDS. Mm-hmm. And uh, once we have those data, the institute... Um, funds uh, and supports, again, this Safe to Sleep campaign to help us educate uh, the public and spread the message of safe infant sleep to help caregivers know what they can do in their homes to reduce the risk of their babies dying from sudden infant death syndrome or other sleep-related causes of infant death like accidental suffocation. Wow, this is great stuff. And then we've got someone working on the front lines, Geraldine Simpkins. Geraldine, you're based, is it true, right here in Minnesota? No, I actually live in Michigan, but I, for the project, I'm the consultant for the Bemidji region, which includes Wisconsin, Michigan, and Minnesota. Okay, that Bemidji threw me, because that put me, in my mind, put you right in Minnesota, but it's the Bemidji area, so we're talking about an IHS service area. That's correct. Okay. Yes. So what do you do with the project? How do you, are you implementing just the Safe to Sleep campaign, or are you involved with other things, Geraldine? I'll tell you how I got involved with it to begin with. Mm -hmm. I am a nurse midwife by training. Okay. And so mothers and babies are my business. Mm -hmm. They have been for the last 40 years. And I've also been working in Indian country for about the last 20 years. And the whole issue around health and well-being is something that is very important to me and, of course, to the communities that I work with. And so I got involved with this project at the very onset when it was discovered that uh, Native Americans and Alaska Native people had a very high rate of SIDS compared mm-hmm. to other um, races and ethnicities, white, white for one, Caucasians for one. And uh, I'm not sure if the, our audience is, is familiar with some of the terms. So would you like me to, to talk about terms or would you like us to talk about how we got the project going to begin with? I'll tell you, all of this is important stuff. And maybe, you know, as you've mentioned, just the high rates of, of SIDS. Maybe, Lorena, just give us a feel on how prevalent SIDS is in general across the uh, American demographic, and then do we have any idea what it's like in Indian country? Sure, yeah, we do. Um, on average, there are approximately 3,700 um, sudden unexpected infant deaths that occur every year. Wow. So sleep-related infant deaths. Mm-hmm. And um, of those, the majority are sudden, unexpe- uh, sudden infant death syndrome deaths. We mm-hmm. know that... Um, 
for the American Indian Alaska Native community, they are up to three times more likely to experience these deaths than our, for example, Caucasian communities. So uh, working in and amongst the American Indian Alaska Native community is one of our priorities. Mm -hmm. um, this is a, a tragic uh, number of deaths um, that we are working diligently to try to reduce. And one of the ways in which we do that is by um, bringing to life the Healthy Native Babies Project, which mm. is um, where Geraldine helps us out. So Healthy Native Babies Project uh, is informed by the community. It mm -hmm. was developed with input from the community. And we offer uh, a wide variety of tailored educational and outreach materials for service providers to use in their communities as they help us to spread the message of safe infant sleep. That's great. Now, Geraldine, I thought it was great because you're an educator, and I knew that the minute you said can we define things? And, and we definitely need to do that because folks think they know what SIDS is, but how do you as a professional define SIDS and how do you explain that to someone? So SIDS is the sudden unexpected death of an infant that does not have a known cause after full mm. investigation. And it's of a baby between one, one month and one year of age. And about half of all the sudden and unexpected infant deaths in the U.S., are attributed to SIDS. So that's one category that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. The other category, other sleep-related causes of infant death, are suffocation, entrapment, and strangulation. And suffocation occurs when something such as a pillow or someone's hand or body covers the face or the nose of the baby, blocking its ability to breathe. Mm. And entrapment means a baby gets trapped between two objects like a mattress or a wall and can't breathe. And then strangulation occurs when something presses on or wraps around the baby's neck uh -huh. and therefore that blocks the baby's airway. So we're talking about, uh, and those, those particular causes of infant death can be prevented. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that our project focuses on a lot is how to um, employ and use protective behaviors for those things that could be prevented. Mm -hmm. And many of these deaths can be prevented. So basically, if we're to talk about these early childhood deaths or these infant deaths, we're talking about two main categories. So one are the things you've explained, the strangulations and the entrapments and things. But then the other, when we can't find a known cause for the death, we label that SIDS. Is After that right? a full investigation. That's correct. Okay. That is correct. And because we don't know what causes SIDS at this point, we're, we can't prevent. But what we can do mm -hmm. is reduce the risk and build on some of those protective factors uh, that Geraldine was talking about uh, in order to uh, hopefully reduce the number of not only sudden infant death syndrome deaths, but also other sleep-related causes of infant death. Mm -hmm. Now, I think one of the things that has been confusing to mothers over the years, as well as health professionals, is there have been these varying messages about sleep posture and sleep positioning that seem to to change with the uh, with the era, if you will. And maybe that's just a reflection of how old I am. But what is the what is the current thinking about this, and and why do recommendations change? Do we have any insights into that? Yeah, we do. And, and thank you for that question. Uh, what we often tell parents who tell us, you know, you keep changing the recommendations <laughs> and we don't blame them for, uh -huh. for saying that. Um, what, really, it's just based on the fact that we do research all the time. Okay. We, we never stop wanting to figure out what it is that keeps babies safe mm -hmm. or what puts them at risk. Mm -hmm. So some 
parents, um, you know, a couple decades ago learned from the experts that babies could potentially be put to sleep on their stomachs or then it changed to side and back and then it was just back. So the recommendations have changed over time just based on the data that we were collecting and what we knew uh, was best in terms of keeping babies at lower risk for SIDS. Uh, the recommendation has for several years now been to put babies to sleep solely on their backs. Okay. And um, those recommendations are actually put forth by the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on SID. So it is important to note that the Safe to Sleep campaign does not issue recommendations, but our messages mm. including an, uh, included in all of our educational materials reflect recommendations from the AAP. Okay. And the AAP's recommendations are all evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So should a parent get worried if they put the child to sleep on its back and they find the child on its side or stomach? So no. And uh, what we tell parents is always put baby to sleep on their backs for um, all sleep times, including nap time. Okay. But once baby starts to be able to roll from the tummy, I'm sorry, from the back to the tummy and the tummy to the back, it is okay to leave them in whatever position uh, baby wants to sleep in. So they don't have to wake up baby okay. to reposition him or okay. her on the back. Good, good. Well, that's practical information. Now, one of the things I know that engages people all the time when they're doing a show, at least my listeners listening to my guests, is when there's stories. And when you speak about prevention, sometimes prevention doesn't lend itself to stories because there's no drama involved with preventing something that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. But at the same time, when you're working in communities, often there are things that are rewarding or things that kind of refocus us. Geraldine, you're out there working, you know, in several states. Are there certain things, certain stories, certain illustrations that that kind of bring these points home when you talk with groups? Yes, indeed. And I love stories. So would you like a couple? Please, please. At least one to start with. (laughs) At least one. Okay. One of the recommendations um, for safe infant sleep is to not smoke around the baby because Mm. that affects the baby's um, breathing, Mm -hmm. ability to breathe well. And so I was working in a community, uh, a Native American community, where there was a lot of smoking, as there is in many communities. Mm -hmm. And the young parents were both smokers, but after they went to their prenatal visits with their midwife, they found out that smoking was really bad. Mm -hmm. And so the mother actually quit smoking and the father just tried not to smoke around the mother. Well then, uh, as the baby, after the baby was born and was home, the father and mother, the mother continued not to smoke, but the father took the smoking outside, which is one strategy for not Mm -hmm. smoking around the baby. Well, when grandma came to visit, grandma smoked. And she came in smoking, and when they said, Grandma, we really prefer you not to smoke around the baby, they said that very respectfully to their elder. Grandma says, I've been around for, you know, 60 years smoking, and all of you have lived, and I don't think it's a problem. And so, slowly but surely, the young man, whose Mm -hmm. grandma it was, says, can we share with you some of the information that we learned from our midwife? Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, Grandma said, hmm. At first she was resistant, but then she Mm -hmm. said, hmm. Are you sure about this? And he said, yeah, Grandma, let me show you some of the materials. So they had an opportunity to talk. And so Grandma decided to take the smoking outside Mm, with her grandson. And then she went to the elders' meals and says, do you know that you're not supposed to be smoking around baby? And she became the champion of the non-smoking around the baby. And the young man, you know, sort of announced how great his grandma was because Uh she was not smoking around the baby. And she said, of course not. Why would you ever smoke around the baby? (laughs) 
No, that is a great story. <laughs> what I love about it is this whole way of approaching people. You know, sometimes with health education, people feel that they've been beaten over the head with prevention messages. And what you're sharing there, Geraldine, is just this kind of respectful appeal, this sharing of information. And even people that we sometimes think are very resistant or won't change, we're surprised. As a clinician, I've been surprised mm -hmm. over the years yeah. to see sometimes which patients take heed to messages, sometimes ones that I would not think would be receptive, and others who I think are receptive don't make those changes. So that's that's a wonderful illustration. I just have to say, uh, we love working with grandparents because we recognize that they are oftentimes the opinion leaders and not only the, the tradition setters for their families. So it is important that we acknowledge their role uh, as leaders in their families, but also um, as key individuals in keeping babies safe. No, this is really great stuff. We definitely want to talk more about this topic because I know you've got some other great pointers that can help our listeners. We've got to step away, but before we do, in case someone can't stay by for the next segment, can you give us just a single point of contact? Do you have a website or something else? Yes, we do. So they could get in touch with us by going to safetosleep.nichd.nih.gov. Okay, safe to sleep dot NIH NICHD NICHD dot NIH dot GOV. Correct. Okay, we'll give you that uh, one more time in the next segment. We'll be coming back with more from these two ladies who are making a big difference in Indian country, teaching you how to make a big difference as well. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose. We're in the home stretch of our show today. American Indian Living has been recording from the National Tribal Public Health Summit. It's May of 2018 when we're recording this program. And with me still are Geraldine Simpkins and Lorena Kaplan. They've been talking with us about the Safe to Sleep campaign. And lest I forget, it's such a complicated website. A lot of those uh, government websites get a little bit complicated for us. But if, if I can remember that you are representing the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child and Human Development, and those last initials, National Institute of Childhood, Childhood, Child? Child and, Health and Human Development. Okay, Child Health mm-hmm. and Human Development. Okay, N-I-C-H-D. Yes. Okay, if I can remember N-I-C-H-D, put a dot, N-I-H for National Institutes of Health, and then another dot, G-O-V, that's your main website, yes. and the campaign we're talking about is Safe to Sleep. Correct. Just stick that in front of everything else, and it sounds so, well, I don't want to say simple, but if I remember Safe to Sleep and I put it in a search engine, I'll probably get there, right? If you uh, type in Safe to Sleep and also N-I-C-H-D into your search engine, it will take you to our website. Okay. So I think that's the easiest. N-I-C-H-D. National Institute for Childhood... Of Child Health and Human Development. And ICHD. I'll I'll admit to my my audience, as if they couldn't tell, I've heard of a lot of the institutes of health before, but I had not heard of this one. You see, I'm still struggling with it. And while I'm struggling with it, hopefully we're reinforcing the correct initials, which are N-I-C-H-D. Correct. Okay, whether you can remember all the names or not, N-I-C-H-D, put that in there with Safe to Sleep, and we're in business. We are. For those who have already given up on trying to remember the website or any way to find it, we've still got a chance to give them some pointers in this uh, last segment. So, Lorena, what are some key things for safe infant sleeping that you want to tell us about? Well, uh, we have a couple ones to share, but for the full list, please do go to our website. So uh, one of the main things that we tell parents is that babies sleep safest on their backs. Okay. Uh, So always place babies to sleep on their backs for naps and at night. So every sleep time counts. Mm -hmm. And uh, the back seat position really is the safe position uh, until they're about one year old. Okay. But again, uh, as we said earlier, once babies start to flip from the tummy, uh, from the back to the tummy and the tummy to the back, it's okay to leave them in whatever position the baby chose to sleep in. Mm -hmm. Uh, But placing babies to sleep on their backs at the start of every sleep time is very important. Okay. I got that message. I think all of us do. Good. What other things can we learn? Well, uh, it's also important to use a firm and flat sleep surface, Mm. uh, like a crib, for example, Mm -hmm. or a um, safety-approved play yard. And uh, there should be nothing in the crib other than a, a fitted sheet that covers the mattress and baby. So we tell uh, folks that the most beautiful thing in the baby sleep area should be the baby. So really plain and simple is so the best no way to So no blanket go. or anything like that? No blankets, um, uh-huh. no bumpers, uh, no soft items like uh, toys or uh, pillows. All of these things can create suffocation uh, really? or strangulation hazard. So it's important to keep a clear sleep space for um, baby to sleep safely 
uh, and also comfortably. Mm -hmm. So if it's cooler in the room, you're just going to dress the child warmer? Does that work or is that a concern too? Um, that can actually be a concern as well. So mm -hmm. that is one of our other campaign messages. We tell folks that they should not uh, overdress or overbundle babies. We mm -hmm. want baby to be uh, comfortable and safe, but not overbundled. And one of the ways to do that is to um, put baby in maybe one additional layer than an adult would wear to be comfortable in that room. So mm -hmm. um, they make wearable blankets now that folks can mm -hmm. use. Um, so if baby's wearing a onesie, you can put a wearable blanket um, over the baby, mm -hmm. and they make different. Uh, they make those in different thicknesses. So okay. you can get a thin one for the summer months and a thicker one for the winter months. Mm -hmm. So um, there shouldn't be any issue with overheating uh, as long as you're monitoring the baby's temperature. So if, if baby feels warm to the touch or is sweating or is breathing rapidly, those are signs of overheating. So mm -hmm. at that point, it's it's time to remove a layer and make sure the baby um, isn't overheating. Okay, very good. Another so, recommendation, uh -huh. can I share another sure, one? Sure, please. Is to make sure that uh, people put babies to sleep in the same room. So parents should uh, room share, mm -hmm. but not bed share. So that means mm -hmm. keep baby sleep uh, space next to the adult bed, mm -hmm. but that should be a separate surface. That way mom has the ability to reach over and bring baby into bed for feeding, comforting, or soothing, mm -hmm. but then also putting baby back once they're done uh, or uh, once mom or the caregiver is starting to feel sleepy. And so this should be done for at least, uh, for ideally for the baby's first year, but at least for the first six months. Okay. Yeah. And another key recommendation um, is to breastfeed babies to reduce the risk of SIDS. Mm. Uh, and this is something that people might not know about. Breastfeeding has many benefits for babies, uh, but one of them is that it can reduce the risk of SIDS. And uh, my colleague, Geraldine, is actually a nurse and also a midwife, and she's got a really, way to, uh, really great way to explain to folks why that is so important. Yeah, so, and probably as a mom, also, of the three children that I breastfed, I didn't, I really didn't know at the time that I was breastfeeding my babies uh, that particular protective benefit uh, for SIDS. I knew all the health benefits mm -hmm. and the nutritional benefits, but I didn't know for SIDS. And SIDS is, or uh, breastfeeding is a protective practice to reduce the risk for, for um SIDS. And that's really exciting news because, of course, um, babies um, who are breastfed have many uh, nutritional and immune kind of benefits, mm -hmm. but they also, the, the, the risk of SIDS is lowered when you breastfeed. And if you're breastfeeding your baby and the, and the baby's in bed with you, um, you should put the baby back to uh, its place right next to you, close but separate. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to fall asleep, you know, that's okay. That You're going to fall asleep. The baby's going to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But as soon as you wake up, then put the baby in its separate place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, that moms um, these days get so frightened about mm -hmm. the, the concept of sudden infant death syndrome and strangulation of their baby, unintended deaths. And, and, and of course, we... <laughs> it's it's a scary thought. Sure. It's really a scary thought. And 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 they want to do it right. All moms want to do it right. All infant caregivers want to do it right. But the important thing is if you fall asleep and you're nursing your baby, you're doing a good thing. Mm -hmm. You're giving the baby breast milk. But when you wake up, then put the baby in its little place next to you. I think that's that's something that parents just need to remember. Yeah, and actually the American Academy of Pediatrics just uh, in their latest recommendations for safe infant sleep um, acknowledge this, that mm. this is a, a practice that is common. 
falling asleep in bed while breastfeeding. And they did mention that one of the ways to reduce the risk uh, when this happens is if uh, mom is going to bring baby into bed, Mm -hmm. the adult bed for breastfeeding, that that bed should be cleared of all soft bedding. So no pillows, no blankets, no comforters, no no uh, sheets, uh, just mom and baby. Uh And that way, if she falls asleep accidentally... Um, there are fewer things in the environment that could put baby at risk. And mm-hmm. then once mom wakes up, she can put baby back in its own sleep space. And the one thing to really remember, um, beds um, are one thing, but taking a baby to a couch or a recliner is actually even more dangerous. Oh, really? Because if a mom falls asleep and a baby tends to wiggle its way down into uh, those cracks of the chair or the cracks of the couch, they actually can get entrapped or suffocated. Mm-hmm. So a couch or a recliner is a more dangerous place, huh. uh, generally speaking. And the evidence does show that the longer the baby is in uh, the bed or couch or a recliner with the mother, the higher the risk of, of unexpected infant death. Huh. So the idea is as soon as you wake up, put the baby back uh-huh. into its separate space. Now, you mentioned this connection with breastfeeding. Do we know how powerful an effect it is? I mean, is this a, a large magnitude of protection that, you know, someone receives by uh, breastfeeding their, their child, or is it relatively small? Do we know that at this point, or is it kind of hard to tell? It, at this point, it's, you know, the, the science on that is not exact, but we do mm-hmm. know that any breastfeeding is better than no breastfeeding. Okay. And it, you know, probably has to do with, like Geraldine said, you know, building that healthy gut microbiome and, mm-hmm. and giving the uh, improved immunity to those babies and helping them to fight off some of the infections that come just by getting some of that good nutrition from mom. But um, the exact reasons why are still being studied and the exact magnitude are still being studied. But we do encourage folks to, if they're able to and if they choose to, um, any breastfeeding is better than no breastfeeding. Okay. Well, that's a very practical message. So someone doesn't have to feel guilty if they can't exclusively feed their baby. They're still uh, giving the baby benefit by breastfeeding right. some. Absolutely. Yeah. There there should be no guilt uh, attached to that. We understand different people have different practices. Well, believe it or not, uh, our time has just about slipped away. Oh, and there are so many stories we didn't share well, this yet. this is a shame. We should have done a whole hour show with you ladies. <laughs> Where were you when we started the, the show? We could have saved the others for another program. Well, listen, we got to try one more time to get that website out because I haven't done too well. Lorena, why don't you redeem me here? Absolutely. Safe to sleep, all one word, dot N-I-C-H D dot N-I-H dot G-O-V. A simpler way to search for that would be N-I-C-H-D, safe to sleep. Type that into a search engine. You'll land on our site. Okay. Geraldine, any final thoughts as we close the show? The thing that I want to say to parents is that what I have learned in my 40 years of being a midwife is that parents want to do well by their babies. Mm. Parents want their babies to live and parents right. want their their children to be well. And so trust yourself. Mm. Trust yourself. Trust your intuitions. Trust what your elders are telling you. Trust the things that make sense to you and that your healthcare providers are sharing with you because you are the expert on your baby and you want your baby to live. And so do we tremendous messages. Thank you so much, ladies. Well, thank you, each one, for joining us on today's edition of American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.